This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here today. Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, if you're here and you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, if you'll raise your hand and leave them up, the ushers will bring you a free copy, and you can turn with us to James chapter 5 for the concluding verses in this letter we've been studying now for a couple months, several months. James chapter 5, we're going to read today and look at closely verses 19 and 20. It's a concluding message on our series. I'm going to have a lengthy intro. The good news is it won't be a lengthy message, okay? So don't panic. It's going to take me a while to get to the points, but that's because I'm trying to conclude the message with some broader thoughts on these two verses. James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's God's holy, inspired, inherent word. And it's for us today. I think God is calling us to be a gospel community that saves, that rescues, that delivers. I recently have been reading a biography about George Armstrong Custer. I've always been fascinated with his life. I enjoy the Western United States. I like to read about the Indian Wars, so-called Indian Wars, and He's a prominent Civil War general that pops up regularly. Actually visited the battlefield, Little Bighorn, in Montana, where he met his end. Biographer says this at the beginning of, of his book, the story begins with its ending. On June 25th, 1876, George Armstrong Custer led the 7th Cavalry Regiment to the Little Bighorn River in the Montana Territory, where Lakota and Northern Cheyenne warriors surrounded him and a detachment of more than 200 troops and slaughtered them to a man. Renowned as Custer's Last Stand. If you haven't heard of that, shame on you. Custer's last stand. It was the greatest defeat inflicted upon the U.S. Army in the late 19th century Indian Wars. It's the one fact 
about the man that lives in American memory. He says, death defined his life. Death defined his life. You may not be aware of this, but in earlier decades, not our own, but decades ago, he was, a, he was considered a, a hero. But cultural opinions now have shifted, haven't they? And so he's more often thought of as an arrogant man, a, a murderer, a land thief. Really, often a joke. But Custer was interesting. He, uh, he was interesting. He was contradictory. I, I like to read biographies because they are about people and they're about life. And, and you can learn about life. You can get the big picture in less than 80 years. <laughs> how, how does truth work out in life? How does wisdom play out? You can see it in this person's life that you read about. And, and because I know that wisdom is gained by experience, I think reading biographies can impart wisdom. Not that it has for me, but I think it can. And so I read about heroes, and I read about cowards, and I read about fools, and I read about wise men and wise women. I read about scoundrels and victims. George Custer was a piece of work. There's much more to him than his death. He was a loyal friend, a, a loving brother, a loving son, a devoted husband. He was also a union general who was a white supremacist. He was a gambler. He craved attention. He was selfishly ambitious. He was contradictory. The biography says, one moment Custer would show skill, judgment, loyalty, courage, and love, and the next, he would veer off into self-indulgence, impulsivity, sarcasm, self-justification, lies, even betrayal. This is true to some extent of most people, but Custer would pivot at stunning speed, lunging from one extreme to another, often in public. That's why I like Custer. He reminds me of me a little bit. Now, my point is that no two people are alike and even individuals shift, they veer, they pivot. They don't remain the same over time. And it's the most important practical thing I've ever learned for serving as a pastor in a church or trying to minister to people. If you want to minister to people and help them grow as a Christian, you have to learn what serves you doesn't always serve other people. And what serves one person may not serve another person, and what serves one person this week may not serve them next week. It's, it's really hard to learn this. Last fall, we celebrated the Protestant Reformation, focusing on the free grace of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ by studying Galatians, the letter of Galatians. And we followed it up this year intentionally 
with this study of the letter of James, this series on James. And his message is, appears to be so different that James actually appears to some people to clash with Paul, to be the opposite of Paul, to contradict Paul. We've talked about this, especially on this issue of faith and works for acceptance with God. Martin Luther, the hero of the Protestant Reformation, we talked a lot about him. He questioned the validity of James, whether it should even be in the Bible as an expression of the gospel. Now, he did keep it in his, his Bible that he translated, but he called it a epistle of straw, and he, he put it with the lesser writings along with the letter to the Hebrews, by the way. And we've learned that James is actually not in conflict with Paul. And, and most of the Reformers saw this. James insists on works because of how important he thinks faith is. That's the issue in James. Genuine faith has an effect on behavior, and this is the burden of this letter. It's a book about true faith as opposed to a false faith. And because of the importance of faith, it's critical that we focus on this. This is why James does it. He wants faith to be genuine. He knows we're prone to deception. We're prone. There are people that think they have faith. Really, they're hypocrites. He began the letter, James 1, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. James is writing to awaken people. He wants his readers, he wants us to be real disciples with living faith. And we chose, the pastoral team chose, to do a series on James because we think in our day and age, this message is maybe more important than at any other time in history. Certainly, it's tied for first. For some, though, you loved Galatians. You loved hearing again and again that our acceptance with God isn't based on our performance, and it served your soul. For others, you have loved James. You love practical wisdom. You feel like right now the need for you is practical wisdom for your daily life. You want to know how to live this Weak and James has kind of rung your bells. It's connected, it's engaging. You've enjoyed ministry being more specific so that you know how to live out the gospel this week. Each person and their experiences and needs are different, and no series serves everybody. And certainly, no sermon serves everybody. You wouldn't minister to George Armstrong Custer the same way you would Ulysses S. Grant. Take it from me. And this is the way our Bibles are put together. They're put together this way. Often Scripture will be focused on one relevant thing. You can see James has an audience, a situation. Jesus ministered to people like this. As you read the Gospels, he would emphasize certain things. He would have a relevant word for a certain situation for a certain person. 
And inevitably, there's kind of an imbalance with that. There has to be. When he talked with people, he would be direct, wouldn't he? He would be specific. He wasn't vague in these moments. He gives people what they need and what they can handle at that ministry moment. Of course, he did it perfectly, and we never do. But he did. All this to say, we need the big picture and we need particulars. It helps to know everything that can be said, even though you know you can only say one thing. Different situations that we're engaged in or different people call for different truths at different times in different ways, different ministry approaches. Sometimes, actually, a word that really helps some people can actually prove to be unhelpful or even misleading and destructive. Here's what counselor, theologian David Pallison says. And he's talking about growth in Christ-likeness. He's talking about living the Christian life in light of the gospel in a way that's worthy of the gospel that we've received. And he's kind of getting into the nitty-gritty. And I think this is helpful. If, if what you need to know is, I am with you right now, I am your refuge in this affliction, in other words, God's saying that to you, then you may well go hungry if you are given... I died for your sins once and for all. You might beat up on yourself for your lack of faith, or you might go cold to God because a message that claimed it would help you doesn't seem to touch your need for help. He's very pastoral. He's a counselor. In the long run, a single truth harped on will disappoint even its devotees. In another season of life, facing a different struggle, they too will need the other kinds of help. They're like Custer. They veer. They change. They pivot. What once sizzled becomes boring. A repetitive pat answer that no longer delivers. So all this to say, be patient with me. James, I hope, has been helpful to us all. We've tried to see the gospel. He was firm on the gospel. But a lot of times he does assume the gospel in his letter because it's brief. His letter is much more practical. Hopefully it's served you. If it hasn't, Galatians is online. <laughs> so in conclusion of this series, we're going to look at these two verses. James was Jesus' half-brother. Half the time, I have called him his stepbrother. He is not his stepbrother. Thank you for all your correction. <laughs> James was Jesus' half-brother. Mary was their mother. Jesus, though, was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary when she was a virgin. James was the son of Joseph, conceived like each of us, in the normal human way. Maybe Kent can do a cornerstone you on that this fall. James grew up with 
Jesus. But he wasn't a believer. He wasn't a disciple of Christ. But after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to him intentionally, specifically. Imagine, hey, it's my brother. By the grace of God, when that happened, James was born again. In chapter 1, James says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's what happened to James when the resurrected Christ appeared to him. He was brought forth by the word of truth. He was born again. He became a Christian then within days of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. That's the author of this letter. And he then became a prominent leader we know from the book of Acts in the, the church, the mother church, the first church in Jerusalem on the, on the day of Pentecost. Roughly 10, 15 years after that, he wrote this letter. Most would say it's the earliest letter we have in the New Testament. It's certainly a very early Christian letter it feels very Jewish. It's said to be the wisdom letter in the New Testament. It explains why it's different. Our text today is the concluding verses. They might seem abrupt, but they capture the central concern of this book. And that's why it's just great to read in verse 19, the first two words, my brothers. As we've seen it again and again, from the very beginning of the letter. And he introduces his final thoughts. In fact, in this concluding section, chapter 5, in verses 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, again and again, he says, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. His, his relationship with these people that he is writing in this letter, it's, it's of the utmost importance to him. He cares about it. And I've tried to say that again and again because it helps us get where he's coming from. He cares about these people. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. They're siblings in the family of God. He's their pastor. The foundation of his ministry is that he's a member of the community too, with them. They're fellow believers. And they're in this fight together. He cares about them. So you may not like what he says, but don't ever question why he says it. And here are three points today to consider from these two concluding verses. Number one, are you wondering? Are you wondering? Number two, is there someone you can rescue? And finally, Let's consider the power of the gospel to save. Number one, are you wondering? Verse 19, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, it's a, it's a description of someone who is willfully departing from the truth. They are veering off the path James has been talking about throughout this letter the path of true wisdom, they're veering off. Someone in the fellowship, 
Someone in this spiritual community, someone in this local church is slipping away, veering off, pivoting to the path of sin and death. He has taught in this section, and he says in verses 13, verses 14, and 19, anyone among you, anyone among you, anyone among you. So we know this section goes together. And in this section, he's taught that praising God and praying to God is how we should respond to all these different circumstances we find ourselves in throughout our lives. And now he's... he's in, in, emphasizing the importance of caring for one another in the process. So he's talked about sickness, he's talked about sin and the relational breakdown with God and others and how we need to confess our sins to God and confess our sins to one another and how we need to pray for the sick. And now he's talking about what to do when someone in the church is leaving the path of truth and wisdom or wandering away. And you can see it happening. He's assuming this. You can tell. In Titus 1, Paul spoke of the knowledge of the truth that accords with or goes with godliness. They go together. Truth and, and godliness. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel, they go together no matter how hard we try, you can't separate these two if you listen to the whole counsel of God we find in Scripture. Truth is never merely a matter of knowledge, of, of knowing information. Truth is living in the Bible. It, it grips our minds. Truth changes your life. And when a person claims to know the truth, there's going to be a way of life that matches the truth. Jude 4, Jude, James, full brother, says this, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. In the church, our lives are visible. They make it plain if we are living in truth. There, there's a way of life that matches the truth of the gospel. It's visible. And wandering from the truth doesn't just concern doctrine. Wandering from the truth has to do with life itself. Truth is something you do. Truth is something you obey. It's not just something you know. Paul in Galatians 5, remember, said, you were running well. In other words, you were living well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? John wrote in his first epistle, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. James says the truth is that people wonder not just from intellectual knowledge, not just from statements of truth, 
They wander from living right. They wander from right practice. They, they, they wander from living life in the light of the gospel, and they, they no longer put their faith in action. And you can see it. And that's why he said in chapters one, chapter 1, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And he's repeated this theme throughout the letter. We can't separate these. They're not negotiable. Our job is to care and to rescue one another when we see someone wandering from the path. It's, it's like we're having a seize the summer event. Say we're having a hike in the Smokies. Say we're going to go to Abrams Falls. So we take the Abrams Falls Trail for the two and a half miles from the trailhead to the falls. The trail, if you've been there, is surrounded by rhododendron. It goes through a rhododendron jungle. If you've ever had to wade through rhododendron, it's a jungle out there. And it's like we're, we're on this hike and some of our members have veered off the trail. They're lost. They're entangled in a rhododendron jungle. There is real danger. There's danger of hypothermia, dehydration, fear, panic, bears, although I think that's exaggerated in the Smokies. They need their brothers and sisters who are with them on this seize the summer moment hike to get a park ranger and go find them. They need someone to find them and bring them back to the trail because they are a lost hiker. They need help. They need to be saved. They're, they're facing pain unless they're rescued, maybe even death. Wandering from the truth is serious business in the New Testament. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's very easy to do that these days. The, the internet is filled with myths. And it, we're bombarded with myths. It's characteristic of our age to accumulate teachers who give you what you want. It's characteristic of this age to make it easy to wonder. We need the message of James. So, are you wondering? Have you wondered? If so, ask for help. Don't, don't take others with you. Get back on the path. Secondly, let's consider, is there someone you can rescue? Again, my brothers, if anyone, verse 19, among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He's, he's talked about throughout this letter the power of the tongue, hasn't he? He's talked about the power of tongue for evil. Now he's talking about 
the power of the tongue for good. This is what it's for. And when someone does wander from the path, it's no time for others in the community to get discouraged, <laughs> to decide to wander off themselves and get lost. It'd be like our park ranger. We find him in the Smokies and we tell him someone's wandered off the trail and they're lost, and he gets discouraged. And he wanders off himself. And he starts crying. He's, he's depressed. The church is a community called to care for others. And when somebody wanders, somebody bring them back. Amen. He's addressing here issues of life and death. Rescue's the right word. That's how we respond when somebody wanders from the truth and we can see it in their lives. We rescue them. Verse 20 if we do, we save his soul from death. Is that worth your time? We cover a multitude of sins. That's, a, that's an Old Testament idea that you would expect from, from someone very close to the Old Testament. This is how the Old Testament describes how God deals with our sin. He covers it over. He hides it out of his sight. He hides it out of the sight of others. He puts sin out of sight by providing a sacrifice. It's like there's a financial transaction. We're going to buy something. We give the money and someone says that'll cover it. It's a totally sufficient payment. That's the idea of the Old Testament. A sacrifice that covers Every sin, a multitude, lots of sin. James has in mind here, he says it like it's communicated in the Old Testament, but you know what he has in mind? The gospel. The good news. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It covers a multitude of sins. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the gospel. It covers all the sins. He was raised for our justification. He went to James and he appeared to him and James got it. He got it. He saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. He received the gift of faith. It no longer mattered. This is my half-brother. What mattered is this is my Lord. He's been raised from the dead. And now I'm declared righteous. James is no legalist. James is no moralist. He knows God is the one who forgives sins. God is the one who covers sins. He knows we're sinners. We, you definitely picked that up in, the, in this letter, right? You get that. 
But we have a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Faith that unites us to the crucified and resurrected Christ. We live by faith in him. He loved us. He gave himself for us. And from James' perspective, a local church is a place of truth and a place of holiness. It's truth that's held by the members. They do believe in statements. They study these truths, and it changes their lives. And they live in a different way. And every member is called to be watchful for the spiritual welfare of others, to look for others, to look out for them, their spiritual welfare, to see that they're continuing to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This isn't bad. For James, this isn't a bad thing. It's it's a gift from God to be in a local church where people care about the spiritual welfare of others. We need this. This is how God provides for us. We tend to wonder. Like we sang, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you'd say, not me. You're deceived. We need to have others. It's a a blessing. It's it's a blessing when when a brother or a sister runs after us to minister us, to lead us back. The grace-motivated living for Christ. James knows in every local church, there are some whose profession of faith isn't real. Their faith isn't genuine. And he knows that eventually that's going to become evident. And when they depart from living the truth, it's revealing. And the good news includes... Caring for people like that. So ask yourself right now, is there someone I need to rescue? He also knows there are genuine believers who backslide for a season. There are genuine believers who slip away from living the truth for a season. But they always remain secure in Christ. Without fail, they will be brought back to the path. They cannot be snatched out of his hand. He knows both of these things. The evidence for the false brother and the the evidence for the true brother are essentially the same to those in the church. We don't know the secret of their hearts. We don't know the secret counsels of God. He knows their heart. We don't. But either way, we can't sit back and do nothing. When there is a slipping away We seek to bring them back to save their soul, to cover a multitude of sins. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders, someone brings it back. It's not one particular person that wonders, and it's not one particular person that brings them back. This is everybody's duty. Each is on the alert to rescue. We have a duty to one another to pursue, to care for, to rescue. We we become aware of error and, and we seek them out to bring them to Christ so their sins will be forgiven, so they'll be completely covered by the one 
final sacrifice, they'll be forgiven. When we see someone begin to drift, it's a call to action. We are agents of forgiveness. We are on a mission to see this member restored. We are working with them together in the fight of faith. That's the essence of the Christian life. It's, it's learning to fight for faith in a way that doesn't replace grace. At the end of our biography, it's got to say he fought the good fight of faith. We've got to learn to say with Paul, it wasn't I, but it was the grace of God that was with me. We have to say with him, I struggled with all his energy. But we have to struggle, we have to fight. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We fight to bear the burden. We fight to carry the yoke, but he gives the power in such a way that it's easy. All burdens are light to him. We need to know faith is what Satan targets. We have to fight and we have to fight our whole lives. James said in chapter 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. Is there, is there someone you can rescue? Finally, these verses ask us to consider the power of the gospel to save. Notice it, it says, James says repeatedly, brings him back. Brings back a sinner from his wandering. Covers a multitude of sin. These, these are things that only God can do. Only God can grant repentance, right? Only God can cover sins. And yet, it's our duty. So how can James ask members of the church to do the things that only God can do? We can't do it. One commentator, Alec Moitier, says this, We cannot do it, but we must act as if we could. <laughs> George Armstrong Custer was a man who believed in fate. He was fatalistic. It didn't really matter what you did because everything was already determined. He would have loved Doris Day and her most famous song, Que Sera, Sera. I, I would love to sing it for you. It's completely unbiblical. <laughs> and it got Custer killed. And 200 men, he led them into slaughter because he believed that his actions were governed by an impersonal force or a God that was checked out. Not a God who answers prayer. Not a God that blesses our efforts. Not a God that uses men and women. His understanding of the future wasn't informed by Scripture. We're not believers in blind faith. We, we do not think events are out of our control because they're determined by a God that doesn't hear our prayers or 
or help gospel communities lead people back to the trail. In fact, our concern and our effort should be such that it is as if we can bring wanderers back. It should be as if we can cover a multitude of sin. Our prayers are powerful. Our ministry to others is powerful. You look on the paper today, the front page, it says the arrival. The largest freshman class in the history of UT Knoxville. And it, I am so thankful, thank you, to this community, to this congregation for having a heart to take the good news of Jesus Christ to that campus. All those interns are funded by, mostly by you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. It doesn't serve you personally, but you care about the largest freshman class in the history of UT Knoxville. You care, and you understand it matters that we do this. It matters. We believe in the sovereign grace of God in salvation, but we also believe that he uses our efforts. He uses them in the community. He uses them outside the community to take the gospel to the nations, to take the gospel to the campus, to our neighbors. Only God can save, but he saves through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's given us the gospel. And we're going to preach the gospel to ourselves. We can't save, but we must act as if we could. We have the privilege to rescue people. We're called to be a gospel community that saves. Are you wondering? Ask somebody to help you. Ask somebody to preach the truth to you. Is there someone you can rescue? There is not a moment to lose. Let's, let's rejoice this morning in the gospel for the glory of God and for the good of others. Amen? Father, I pray this morning. I believe, Lord, our prayers as a congregation matter. And Lord, I pray that you would fill this congregation with faith. Strengthen our faith. Help us, Lord, to believe that you are a God who is sovereign and who is powerful. You alone can save. You alone forgive sin. But Lord, we pray that you would fill us with faith so that we would trust you, so that we would be united to Christ and be filled afresh this morning with the Spirit. Make our faith strong, Lord, and make our ministry powerful, our ministry to one another, and our gospel preaching ministry to the world around us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.